All right, grab a Bible. We're going to look up some passages tonight. Grab some notes. If you don't have notes, you want to follow along. If you were to visit the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, maybe you've heard of the Oracle of Delphi. is a famous sort of uh, oracle, um, prophetic utterance uh, that people would all over the world would come to visit. And in that same place, there's a temple to Apollo, and that's what's left of it. It's there on the side of a mountain, and you can see there's a Greek inscription there on the left. I don't know exactly where you find that at that temple, but I've read that it's inscribed at this temple, and the Greek inscription says, know thyself. And a lot of scholars say that's a a good summary of sort of classical philosophical wisdom from Greco-Roman culture. Know yourself, know who you are. Um, In the 18th century, there was a man named Alexander Pope. Uh, He translated a lot of different poems and wrote poems of his own. And he said something similar. He said, the proper study of mankind is man. And as Christians, we would agree with both of those statements in the sense that part of having a biblical worldview is knowing who you are in knowing where you came from and knowing what your condition is and knowing uh, what you're made of and, and the parts that, that constitute all of who you are as a human being. And so tonight we're adding to what we talked about last week. I told you last week that last week's lesson really goes with tonight's lesson and tonight's lesson really goes with last week's lesson. And that if you don't have both of them, you sort of get an imbalanced picture of who we are as human beings. And so last week, the emphasis was on who we are as God created us. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And what is the significance of all of that? Uh, Tonight, the emphasis is on sin. And so up at the top of your sheet, you see the big long word, hamartiology. And it comes from the Greek words, two words, hamartia, meaning sin, and ology, meaning the study of or the science of. So we're talking about the study of sin tonight. And this is something that has to be part of every worldview. Everybody who sets forth some philosophy or faith or doctrinal system or whatever to explain all that we experience as human beings, they've got to account for this somehow, some way. They've got to account for why are there bad things that we experience in the world. And different worldviews come up with different explanations for this. And so just two examples I'll mention. The Buddhist worldview says there is suffering in the world, but it's only an illusion. And the quicker you reckon with the fact that it's really not suffering, that it's just something you think that you're experiencing, it's just an illusion, then you will stop suffering and everything will be great. I don't find that really intellectually satisfying at all, to think about the suffering that you've experienced in your life or me in my life, for example, this cold that I have, and just to say, it's just an illusion. If you could just pretend like you didn't have it, you wouldn't sound so nasally and ridiculous. Get with the program. You need to be enlightened. So that's one example. It's just an illusion. Another example, and I'm going to tell you that this is an entirely different worldview. This is not just a subset of Christianity. This is a different worldview than Christianity. And I'll just lump it under the big heading of the Word of Faith movement. I'm not talking about all Charismatics. I'm not talking about all Pentecostals. 
but I'm talking about Word of Faith preachers. And the guy that's up on the screen is Kenneth Hagin. Um, church historians sort of look back over the last 50, 60, 70 years, and they say this is the guy that really started the Word of Faith movement. Um, people like Kenneth Copeland would be part of that today. Joel Osteen would be part of that today. Creflo Dollar would be part of that today. Joyce Meyer, much to some people's disappointment, would be part of that today. And I'm telling you, it's an entirely different worldview. And when you really boil it down with these folks and you say, why are there bad things in the world? Why is there suffering in the world and pain in the world and sickness in the world? They're going to come up with one of two answers. And the first two answers they throw at you are not going to be sin. The answers they're going to come up with are, one, you lack faith in some area of your life, and you need to have more faith, stronger faith. And here comes this, this title, the Word of Faith Movement. They say you need to speak what you want into existence. Just like God spoke creation into existence, you have that exact same power. And so that's where we get this thing, it's kind of cheesy, we say name it, claim it, but that's what they're talking about, right? They really believe if you just name it with enough faith, it will come into existence. And so if you don't have it now, healing or money or whatever it is that you lack, you just need a little more faith and you need to, to speak that into existence. The other direction they may go is to say there's some sort of demonic oppression in your life. There's some sort of spiritual oppression that needs to be bound or cast out or dealt with or whatever. And these are the two sort of directions they're going to go first and if you really back them into a corner they may end up talking about sin but most of these guys and gals are really not super interested in talking about sin some of them have said as much on on national tv when they're being interviewed they just said you know i, I don't feel called to talk about sin very much well doesn't surprise me it's not part of really the core of your worldview and what you believe i can think about my pastor growing up he gave us uh, a different answer to this question a lot. I bet he said it, seems like he said it 10,000 times growing up in Amarillo, Trinity Baptist Church. Uh, David Evans was our pastor, and he said it over and over and over again. You are the problem, and you're worse than you think you are. You're the problem. Your heart and the sin in your heart is the core root of why there's pain and suffering and sickness and sorrow and sadness in the world. And let me just break it to you. You're way worse than you think you are. And he said that over and over and over again. I remember one sermon he preached. He was talking about Genesis 3, which we'll talk about tonight. He was talking about the fall of Adam. And uh, he used to give us, you know, I give you a half, a half sheet handout on Sunday morning. He would give us front and back handout notes. And I remember the back of it was a series of questions. And it was like, why, why do people die? Fill in the blank. Because Adam sinned. Why did the dinosaurs go extinct? Because Adam sinned. Why do people get cancer? Because Adam sinned. And he, the whole back page was all sorts of examples. And it wasn't a comprehensive list, but he's trying to get it through our brain. The problem is sin. That's the root foundational problem in the Christian worldview. When you read the scriptures and you say, where do all these bad, terrible, painful things come from? The Bible's answer, whether you like it or I like it or don't, is sin. And so that's sort of what we're going to talk about tonight, the doctrine of sin. Just to be honest, it's one of the least flattering doctrines that we're going to discuss, right? Last week was pretty good. You're created in God's image, you have value, you're important, you're unique, and we leave sort of saying, oh, that's great. Well, tonight is sort of like come crashing down to reality and say, 
I hate to break it to you, but you're worse than you think you are. And that's what we're going to talk about. I will tell you this. When I have debates, discussions, people come to me with questions. Um, and I'm not talking about angry non-Christian people. I'm talking about church people who are really trying to sort through things in their life or they're trying to sort through what they're reading in the Bible. Um, one of the things that I seem to come back to over and over and over again in talking to people about doctrine and life and the Christian life and experience is you've got to have a biblical understanding of sin. And if you don't have that, everything else in your experience and your understanding just gets skewed a little bit. It's a key piece to not only understanding the scriptures, but to also experiencing what does it mean to be a Christian and not wrestling and struggling uh, and having doubts about that. So, what do I need to know? What do we need to know about homartiology, about the doctrine of sin? Number one, it can only, only, only be recognized against the backdrop of God's holiness. can only be recognized against the backdrop of God's holiness. We've talked about that in the last few weeks, so I don't know that we need to look up Genesis 1 and 2 that talks about God being the creator. I don't know that we need to look at Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 where God's described as holy, holy, holy. My point to you is simply to say, if you don't understand who God is, you will never truly understand who you are and you'll never understand the doctrine of sin. You can almost think about the holiness of God as this giant spotlight shining on you, okay? It exposes you. And if you stay in the dark and if you stay in the shadows and you stay away from that light, you don't look so bad. All your filth and mess and dirtiness and ugliness, it doesn't look that bad when you're hiding in the dark and in the shadows. But when you step into the holiness of God and you understand that and you experience it, maybe like Isaiah did or like the angels do, you turn around and you look at yourself and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got a problem. And you see sin for what it really is. So foundational, we've talked about this a few weeks ago, is the idea of God being holy. Number two, we need to just define sin. What is it? Sin is any lack of conformity to the law of God in our action, our word, our thought, or our disposition that displeases God and deserves blame. We're going to look a little bit later at Romans 3, so we're not going to turn there now. I just gave you Romans 1, 18 to 3:20, because more than any other passage in the Bible, that's the clearest, longest, most in-depth description of human sin that you'll find in the whole Bible. Starts in Romans 1, 18, goes all the way to 3:20, and Paul just lays it out one step at a time, knocking down arguments, answering questions, quoting the Old Testament, and he's just describing sin. And the takeaway from that is our actions, our words, our thoughts, or our dispositions that do not conform to the law of God. That's what sin is. And I think a lot of people have the understanding that our actions can be sinful, right? Murder is an action and it's sinful. And I think a lot of people have the understanding that your words can be sinful. Things that you say, that's not kind. You shouldn't say that. I think a decent number of us have the, uh, the understanding that our thoughts can be sinful. We've read Jesus when he says, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery, or if you're angry with your brother. So we kind of have this mental category that our thought life 
can be sinful. Even in the Ten Commandments, being covetous. That doesn't have any external action attached to it. It doesn't have any words necessarily attached to it. It's just something sort of in your heart. But this idea of our disposition or our emotions or our attitudes can be sinful, I think is something that most of us don't think of very much. We sort of think in our society as, well, I just, I feel what I feel. I don't really have much control over my emotions. You just, you're in a good mood or you're in a bad mood or you feel this way or you feel that way. But the biblical description, uh, especially when you read the book of Psalms, there's this over and over, you're commanded to feel certain things. Feel this way. Be joyful. It's, it's, com it's command. Rejoice. We're talking about Philippians. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Over and over again, our disposition is part of our, our obedience to God or our disobedience to God. Okay, number three. And this is where we're going to jump into the, the text. Sin, er, entered, sin entered, excuse me, the world through Adam's transgression, which we know as the fall. Underneath that, we'll just sort of explain that a little bit more. Sin entered the world through Adam, our representative, and death entered through sin. And we know that sin spread to all men in that one action because death has subsequently spread to all men. That's Paul's logic in Romans 5. And I just want you to see it for yourself. So fill those little blanks in and then flip over to Romans 5. This is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. <clears throat> about understanding the doctrine of sin. This is divinely inspired commentary on what happened in Genesis 3. Romans 5, 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came into the world through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What Paul's saying is, you got to get your head around this. This sin that Adam brought into the world, when he brought it into the world, it wasn't just his sin, it was our sin. He acted in our representative in such a way that when he sinned, we did it with him. And people say, oh, that doesn't sound fair, I don't like that, that's a lousy system, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But that's what Paul's saying. Death spread to all because all sinned through this one man. It says, verse 13, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but it's not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. The free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so he's setting up this contrast. And he's saying, look, Adam was the first representative, and when he sinned, we sinned, and death spread to all men. Now there's this new man, Jesus Christ. And through him, we don't get sin and death, but we get grace and we get life. He says, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We just read 12 to 21. We could spend a year trying to break down everything that Paul says in that passage. The big idea is really, really clear. In Adam, all who come from Adam sinned with Adam, and death is their experience. And the fact that they experienced death is proof that Adam's sin and Adam's guilt and Adam's all of that mess counted for them. But there's another man, a second man, the second Adam, Jesus, and all of those who receive the gift that he's offering are made righteous because of what he's done on their behalf. And you sort of find yourself, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Which one of these men do you identify with as your representative? So sin entered the world through Adam's transgression. Second thing you need to see here is this. The fall was a cosmic tragedy. And what I mean by that is it had implications for everything that God made. This goes back to what we talked about last week when I told you that human beings were given dominion over creation. Adam and Eve were set up as king and queen of the universe to reign in God's place. So not only did their sin, did Adam's sin affect everyone that came from him, but Adam's sin affected everything that he ruled over, everything that he was given dominion over. And so look at Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. When you read that, you ought to go back to Genesis 3 when God places a curse on the ground. And he says, thorns and thistles are going to come forth and your work is not going to be like it was before. Everything that Adam had dominion over fell under this curse. Was, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, it wasn't the creation's decision, the dirt's decision, but it was because of him who subjected it. And hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he's saying there's people who have the Holy Spirit who are groaning and longing for the day of redemption. And alongside those people is all of creation. Everything that's been subjected to futility because of Adam's sin, in a sense, is also groaning, waiting for the day when it gets set free from this curse that's been placed on it. So this is a cosmic tragedy, okay? This stuff that I'm about to mention to you is not on your outline. I just want to take a time out and I want to mention a few things that people sometimes bring up. 
Sometimes people say, they read Romans 5, they read Genesis 3, and they say, you know what, this is just, um, this is silly. You're telling me that God saw fit to unleash all of this suffering on the world, all the suffering we see and experience and hear about, all the suffering, all because one guy ate one piece of fruit from one tree that he wasn't supposed to eat. How is that equitable? That one man's decision to eat from one tree brought all of this suffering into the world. And here's what I think is a really good answer. This is John Dagg. I told you this was my my favorite Southern Baptist theologian. He said, the test of obedience prescribed to Adam was easy. And this very fact makes the transgression the more inexcusable. It wasn't hard. It wasn't burdensome. It was the easiest thing that it could possibly be. Adam, I've given you the whole earth and all the trillions and trillions of trees on it to eat from. Don't eat from that one. That wasn't a hard command. That wasn't a burdensome command. And the fact that it was so easy makes the rebellion in it that much more ugly. So I think that's a pretty good response to that objection. Here's another objection. People read this Romans 3 stuff or Romans 5 stuff in Genesis 3 and they say, that doesn't seem fair. How is it fair that one man's sin counts for everyone else who has ever lived? I wasn't there. I didn't make that decision. I would have kicked that snake in the teeth. I would have done something different. It's not fair that that counts for me. We don't, we don't operate that way, especially in the United States, right? We count your transgressions as yours, your crimes as yours. We don't punish other people, ideally, for things that you have done. And so we say that just doesn't really seem fair that God would set it up that way. And my first response would be to say, when God set it up that way, he didn't ask for your vote. He's holy and he can do it however he wants to do it. My second response would be to say, well then don't, don't give me any talk about how you want Jesus' obedience and his death to count for you either. Because if you don't want Adam's sin and failure to count for you, why would it be fair for Jesus' obedience and his death to count for you? And that's the parallel that Paul's setting up in Romans 5. Yes, Adam's sin counts for us. As our representative, his guilt is imputed to us. It's counted towards us. But the good news is that in Christ, you can have righteousness and life imputed to you. And the reality is that neither of those are necessarily what we normally think of as fair. Grace itself isn't fair. It's not God giving you what you deserve. It's God giving you the opposite of what you deserve. One last question people ask about this. They say, what was really the first sin? What was really, was it that he ate an apple or an orange or a pomegranate or whatever it was? Was that what the sin was? Or what was the, the essence of, what was at the core of that first sin? And a lot of, a lot of uh, theologians would say it was pride. We're going to talk about that a little bit on Sunday. Um, the issue of pride and sort of wanting to be like God. Some say that was at the heart of it. Some say it was just blatant disobedience. And that's what Paul mentions in verse 19. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So some would say it's just disobeying. Here's the command and he just disobeyed. 
Others would say it was uh, doubting God's word. And you can think about the serpent coming and the first thing he says is, did God really say to you? And so some would trace it back and say this, this first sin really began with questioning God's word. And my answer would be the Bible really doesn't ever speculate on that. And I think the best answer would be yes, all of that is involved in what happened. It was prideful and it was disobedient and it was rebellious and it was doubting and questioning God's word. It was all of those things. And uh, I don't know that it's super helpful to, to split them out and, and to pick on only one of them. Okay, moving on. Sin had disastrous consequences. Disastrous consequences. And I didn't have space on your outline, so I had to cut some of these off. And I'm going to put them up on the screen. I'm not going to give you time to really write them all down probably, but I'm just going to put them up there to show you some of these consequences. It leads to shame in God's presence. It leads to broken relationships. It resulted in a curse on humanity. It leads to death. And it leads to condemnation. You can jot those down if you want, or you can just flip through these verses. I honestly think if you look at the the verses I've given you here, you can figure most of these out. Look at Genesis 3. We couldn't have a night talking about sin if we didn't read a little bit from Genesis 3. Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the the garden. Among all those other trees that they could eat from, they go and hide among them, and they feel this shame to be in God's presence, this fear to be in God's presence they've never felt before. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And the idea there is not just fear because... It's not fear that you are going to come slap me around, but it's fear because I was naked. And he has this, this idea of, I felt ashamed to be in your presence. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And there's broken relationships right there. The man who had a woman made perfectly fit to be his helper, and his job was to lead her and to protect her, takes her and just throws her under the bus and blames her for the whole thing. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then you can read on about this curse that comes on humanity. Flip over and look at Genesis 5. You guys know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Genesis 5 is a genealogy. And I just want you to look at a few verses in Genesis 5. Look at verse 5. It says, all the days Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. 14, the days of Kenan were 910, and he died. 17, Mahalalel died. 18, uh, excuse me, 20, Jared died. Enoch is taken, God took him as he was walking with God, but then you jump back down to Methuselah in verse 27, and he died. Then you get down to Lamech in verse 31, and he died, and we know eventually Noah died, and they all died, and the author of Genesis is saying sin leads to death. This is part of the fallout. Every last one of them dies. The one guy God takes straight to heaven, all the rest of them eventually meet their end. Look at uh, John chapter 3. 
Everybody knows John 3.16. It says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And the argument there is not that if you don't believe in Jesus, then you become condemned, but you're already condemned as you stand now. You're condemned. And so if you don't, you're doubly condemned. But you are condemned already. One last verse. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul here is not talking about physical death, but he's talking about spiritual death. Again, these are the consequences of sin. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the two big consequences you see there is, one, we were dead, spiritually dead because of our trespasses and sins. And two, we we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind who were already condemned have not believed in the name of Jesus. So there's spiritual death and there's condemnation. Um, I'll say this about sin having disastrous consequences. I tell it to my, my young adult Sunday school class all the time. I try to tell it to myself all the time. In life, you get to choose your sin. You do not get to choose the consequences. And I talk to people all the time who begin to deal with the consequences of their sin and they get really religious and really sorry and really repentant and they say, if I had known that this is what would happen, I would have never done it in the first place. And what do you say to that person? You chose a sin, but you don't get to choose the consequences. And they may be light, and you might skate by for a while, and it may not come back and get you. But sooner or later, if you just follow unrepentantly sin in your heart, in your mind, in your life, the consequences will not be pleasant. And I can't change that, and you can't change that. That's just the way it works. It has disastrous consequences. Number five, we sin because we are sinners. The reason you begin to sin as a little child is that from the moment you showed up, you were already a sinner. And that goes against the way our logic works. We think, wait a minute, wait a minute. I should become a sinner the moment that I sin. But we just talked about Romans 5, and Romans 5 says, no, in Adam all sinned, all died. You're already a sinner. The reason you sin is you already are a sinner. So this is the doctrine of, quote-unquote, original sin. Sometimes you may hear... This idea of original sin, and you may think that it refers to something that happened in the garden in Genesis 3. Did I leave that slide off? Did I have it? Original sin? There it is. Doctrine of original sin. It's the idea that sin mars everyone prior to any actual sins that you commit. 
So when we say original sin, we're not talking about like the first sin. We're not talking about the fall. We're talking about the fact that when you were born, you were already a sinner. Psalm 51.5, as David is confessing his sin to the Lord, his sin with Bathsheba, he says, I was, a, I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me in the womb. Before I did any of this other stuff with, uh, with your, uh, Uriah or Bathsheba or lying to the people or trying to cover it up and conspiracy and murder and all that stuff, before I did any of that, I was a sinner from birth, from the womb. B, our sin involves Sins of commission and sins of omission. And I'll let you go back and look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You'll see that some of them are thou shalls and some of them are thou shall nots. So if God says don't do it and you do it, that's a sin of commission, some, some sinful act that you've committed. If God says you shall do it and you don't do it, that's a sin of omission. It's something that you have omitted to do that you should have done. And again, I think a lot of people, just in the Bible Belt, um, there's just this thin, phony layer of Christianity over almost everything in the Bible Belt. I think a lot of people have the idea that sin is something you do, something bad that you do. And they don't have any category for sin might be something you don't do that you should have done. A word that you should have spoken that you didn't. Someone you should have stood up for that you didn't. Something you should have been active in worship doing that you weren't. Sins of omission just, just as bad as sins of commission. Okay, number six. This sort of sums it up. Sin affects every part of who we are. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Some of you may have heard, <coughs> excuse me, you may have heard of that doctrine before. It does not, absolutely does not mean all people are as bad as they could be. You're totally to the max, the wickedest person. You could not do more evil if you tried to do more evil. You're just walking around committing the maximum number of sins. That's not what it means. What it means is every part of you is affected by sin. Your heart, your mind, your body, all of who you are, your emotions, your words, your actions, everything that makes up you has been affected by sin. Underneath that, a couple more thoughts before we get to application. Left to ourselves, no one seeks God. No one seeks God left to themselves. If you were here when we did the book of Psalms on Sunday mornings, we went through Psalms one chapter at a time there's one week we did two chapters and we did chapter 14 and 53 together because they're almost word for word the same and both of those get quoted in Romans 3 so flip over to Romans 3 and we'll kill three birds with one stone and just read one passage when you get to Romans 3 10 to 18 you notice it's it's set apart in a different format it's because it's a quote from the book of Psalms Psalm 14 and 53 says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. This is Paul's conclusion after everything he's been talking about on this doctrine of sin, starting in 118 all the way to 320. 
No one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Talks about their throats, and their tongues deceive. Venom of, of asps is under their lips, their mouths full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their path is ruin and misery. That's the consequence. The way of peace they don't know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one seeks God left to themselves. That's in the Bible three times. It's, it's not debatable. B, one last idea here. We're unable to change ourselves and we're unable to save ourselves. I'm going to let you look up Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Those are new covenant promises in the old covenant. And both of those prophets say there's a day coming where God is going to do something to change your heart. You can't do it, but God is going to change it. And that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus, you can't work your way into the kingdom. You have to be born again. That's something that God has to do for you. In Ephesians 2.10, talks about, we read the first part of that. We're dead in our trespasses. And then you get to verse 4 and it says, but God made us alive. We didn't bring ourselves to life, but God brought us to life. We can't change ourselves and we can't save ourselves. Okay? Why do I need to know this stuff? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, it's impossible to understand reality if you don't understand sin. And by reality, I just mean everything involved in life and death, like human existence. You can't really understand that if you don't understand what the Bible says about sin. How are you going to handle political scandals? It doesn't matter what party's in power, they're coming. <laughs> Are you going to get bent out of shape and so shocked and upset and let that consume you and control you and you're just going to be irate at this side or that side or whatever? Or do you look at that and say, people are sinful. What do you expect? It's just kind of life, right? I mean, you read the Old Testament, there's scandals, there's intrigue, there's lying, there's coups, there's rebellion, there's assassinations. You look through human history, there's all that stuff. What do you expect? How do you make sense of natural disasters? We didn't talk about that a whole lot. We talked about this curse being placed on creation. But when you read about mudslides and tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes and all that stuff, how do you answer that from a biblical worldview? The biblical worldview, the Christian's worldview, says that's a part of the fallout, part of the consequence of Adam's sin. Everything he had dominion over, all of creation, was placed under this curse. And the things that we now experience are not what we were originally supposed to experience. How do you make sense of suffering when you see people who suffer and it doesn't seem to be fair? The biblical worldview has an answer to that. It doesn't always satisfy the people who are suffering or the people who are struggling with the suffering, but it has an answer. Sin has horrific consequences that bring great suffering into people's life. It's not just an illusion. How, how ridiculous to tell somebody who's suffering that. It's just an illusion. Just get over it. Or how ridiculous to tell somebody you just need to have more faith and this wouldn't be a problem for you. Or to tell somebody you just need to have this demon in your life bound and then you won't have any more suffering. The biblical worldview has a completely different answer. It helps you make, make sense of reality. Okay, number two. Understanding the biblical doctrine of sin will change the way you approach relationships. 
One of my favorite marriage books is called When Sinners Say I Do. And one of my other most favorite marriage books, I even like this one even better, is called What Did You Expect? Like, seriously, you're a sinner to the core, warped, wicked, depraved, and your plan is I'm going to marry another person just as wicked as myself, and we're going to live happily ever after. Yeah, right. What did you expect? It doesn't work that way. Sin affects our relationships. Parenting. What did you expect? I mean, when you look at that sweet bundle of joy in the hospital and they're wrapped up and they're, they're just so quiet and peaceful and you think, oh, this isn't so bad. This is easy. Parenting, that's a piece of cake. You know, you got a bundle of sin right there wrapped up and swaddled up and stuck a pacifier in its mouth. That's what you're taking home. What do you think you're getting into? Like sometimes, our, ki- our kids are not that old. Sometimes Brooke and I are like, where did they learn that? Have, what, did you teach them that? Where did they get that from? Oh, my goodness. Here, their heart. Church. What do you expect to happen at church? You expect you're never going to get your feelings hurt? You expect it's always just going to be roses and smiles and how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine too. Fine, fine. Everything's fine. Fine. That's fine. We're fine. That's not reality. Because those people smiling at you saying fine are wicked in their heart. Even though they may be redeemed and they're saved and they've been given a new nature, they're still wrestling with indwelling sin. And I am, your pastor is, and Corey is, and our elders are, and our deacons are, and your Sunday school teacher is. We're all in that boat. Do you think it's just going to all be cupcakes? And then if you have one little conflict, you say, I can't get along with those people. They're crazy. I'm going to go find a better group of people. Good luck with that. Finding a group of people who aren't racked by sin. Just give them enough time. So I'm not saying you, you go into marriage or parenting or to church being jaded and expecting always the worst in people. I'm just saying don't be surprised. Don't let that catch you off guard. Don't go in with unrealistic expectations about how your relationships ought to work. Number three, this is a big one. Understanding the biblical doctrine of sin will change the way you approach work. And we talked about work last week. This may be work that's full-time or part-time that you get paid for or that you'd volunteer for. Um, This may be work with your mind or it may be work with your hands or some combination of the two. But when you understand what happened in Genesis 3, where a curse is placed on the ground that Adam has been called to work, you realize work is not now what it was originally intended to be. Sometimes we think work is like only a result of the fall. Like before the fall, they're laying in the garden in hammocks, sipping little drinks with umbrellas, and then they sin, and God says, all right, time to get to work, let's go. But if you read the story, you know that's not how it happened. First, they're working, and it's a good thing, and it's part of who you are, and if you don't do it, Again, mind or hands, paid or unpaid. If you don't do it, it leaves this void in your life because you were created to work. But you realize it's going to be frustrating. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to do it. There's going to be days at work, whatever your work is, whether you teach school, whether you work at a church building, whether you're in law enforcement, whether you do sell computers, I don't care what you do. There's going to be days where you just want to bang your head on the desk. 
or the wall or the dashboard or wherever you would bang your head. You just want to bang it somewhere and say, this is a total waste. What am I, this is a waste of my life. Work my tail off and what do I have to show for it? Well, they gave me a nice plaque. Well, isn't that nice? I got a plaque for my whole life of work. Well, that's Genesis 3. It's frustrating. You're not going to be able to find fulfillment in your work. You find fulfillment in God. And we set up this idol in the United States of work, and we say, you've got to find the exact right career and do the thing that makes you happy and find all this fulfillment in your job. And we send people on this quest where they'll never find what they're looking for. Hop around from place to place, job to job, looking for something that's going to scratch that itch. It's not going to bring you fulfillment. It's been placed under a curse. You can read Ecclesiastes. Go back and read Ecclesiastes. The author, is, he's on this quest for meaning and purpose, and he's looking at life as if there were no God. And at times, he says things like, what is the point in having a nice house and a nice field and nice flocks if when I die, I have to give it to my loser son, and he's going to let it all go to pot? What's the point? Like, why work if I'm going to have to do that? And you say, well, that's part of Genesis 3. You know, work is going to be frustrating, and it's not going to bring you fulfillment and happiness all of the time. So last week I told you, you got to work. Hands, head, paid, unpaid, it's part of who you are, it's part of who God made you to be. If you don't do that, sort of a part of you, a piece of you is missing, okay? I stand by all that. And today I just say, go into it, eyes wide open, knowing, yes, God made me to do this, but it's going to be frustrating, it's going to be hard. It's not always going to be easy. There's going to be conflict in my relationships at work. We can overlap two and three there. Number four, you cannot appreciate Jesus' obedience until you understand Adam's failure. Genesis 3 is Adam's failure. We've looked at that. Matthew 4 is Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? It's interesting to compare the two. Jesus is tempted and he's alone. Adam is tempted and he has a helper right there with him. Jesus is tempted after 40 days of fasting. Adam is tempted with 10 trillion trees and plants and fruits and vegetables that his, is uh, available to him. Disposal, that's the word I'm looking for. Jesus is in a desert. Adam is in a garden. You could go on comparing these two, contrasting these two. The point is, until you see Adam's failure for what it was, you don't really appreciate Jesus' obedience for what it was. And the last idea is this. Why do you need to know this stuff? No one can accept the good news of the gospel without first accepting the bad news about sin. And that's true whether you're 5 years old or 15 years old or 50 years old or 80 years old. No one can come to Jesus and have saving faith until they come to grips with this idea of sin. And look, when you're 5, the things that you need to understand about sin are a little bit different than what you need to understand about sin when you're 30, right? And sometimes people look back when they're 30 and they say, man, I don't, I don't know that I got it back when I was five. 
And I think most of the time I, I end up saying to people, I think you got it. You just got it on a five-year-old level. And you've experienced a whole lot more life since five. And you realize now that sin does have consequences, and those consequences aren't always fun. And you see God in his holiness more clearly, which means you have more spotlight exposing you and your ugliness and your sin and your depravity. But you, regardless of your age or situation, you cannot accept the good news of the gospel without first accepting the bad news. So let me mention a few books. These are some books you really ought to think about this week. Really, really should. First one is by a guy named Russell Moore. And the book is called Tempted and Tried, The Temptation and the Triumph of Christ. And it's a book that's about Jesus' temptation, but it's also about temptations we face and how that works in our lives. And uh, Dr. Moore used to be one of the deans at Southern Seminary. Um, he was Brooke and I's Sunday school teacher for a while in Louisville. And he's a super smart guy, easy to read book, really, really good about temptation. Next one I will mention is a book called Killjoys, The Seven Deadly Sins. And you notice we didn't talk about the seven deadly sins tonight because that's not a biblical category, although it has a lot of tradition in, in church history. This is a book where they took each of the seven deadly sins and they asked a different author to write a chapter on each one. So they've got pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And... Uh, while the category of these seven sins being the quote-unquote deadly ones is not a biblical, biblical idea, uh, it is a helpful book on some of those different sin issues that we deal with and, um, and face in our lives. The last one is this. It's not the easiest read, but it's called The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. And the reason I mention it is to say this is a book about sin, and this is one of the books that changed the world. This is one of the books that allows us to sit in a Protestant church 500 years. By the way, this will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year, exactly 500 years. Um, but this is, the ideas in this book allow us to sit in a Protestant church and form the foundation of what the Reformers were protesting, the Protestants protesting against what they saw in the Roman Catholic Church. And the idea here is that your will, remember we said sin has affected every part of you. He says sin has affected your will. And you've got to come to grips with that if you're going to truly understand salvation. And these are the guys who turn around after they talk about sin and they understand how it affects us. And they say salvation has to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because our wills have been racked by sin. So there you go. There's a few books to think about and to read on the issue of sin. Um, 